Welcome to Devotions in the Deep End. I'm Cam Buchanan from Mount Gambier, Australia, and this is my quest to teach the whole New Testament as deeply and helpfully as I can. So grab your Bible and a beverage of choice, and let's take a few intentional minutes together in the deep end. Welcome back to Devotions in the Deep End. Our passage for this episode is Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. So we have two men that Jesus wants us to consider here. The first one is unnamed but his status in society is abundantly clear. He is described as being dressed in purple and linen. This is essentially the first century version of Hugo Boss. He's living a luxurious lifestyle and apparently has a gated property. He is known by everybody as a rich man. Now, up to this point, in and of itself, there is nothing all that sinister about him. There were, in fact, lots of wealthy Jews in the history of Israel who are regarded as godly men. In fact, Abraham was the first of these. Having a bit of extra handy cash was not a sinful act. And as this guy has described, it would be reasonable to expect that those listening would associate this story as one of a man being blessed by God. It was entirely possible that someone could work hard, live in an honorable way, and become wealthy. And it was totally conceivable that God would honor that man by blessing his work. Again, the patriarchs were seen this way. The second man in our story is named. He is called Lazarus. We have no clue why this occurred, but Lazarus has been reduced to the status of a beggar. It could have been hard times or retrenchment that's led him here. It could be leprosy or some other illness or issue of uncleanness that has led him to this point. It's quite possible because Jesus tells us of sores that the dogs lick. Lazarus could even have been there simply because he made some poor choices like the manager in the previous parable and has ended up on the scrap heap of life because of his silliness. We are not to know here, as it seems the face value of the man's circumstances overrides the journey it took to get him there. Put simply, the reason he's a beggar is apparently just not important. Jesus then goes to illustrate his point in this by explaining what happens when the worlds of these two men collide. 
The rich man is enjoying his wealth in his fortified home and throwing away that which could be consumed by another. He has food to spare every mealtime and could share it with somebody who was hungry, but instead throws it away. This is a way of understanding food that falls from his table. And he does so despite the fact that a man just a few meters from his table could benefit from what he didn't want. The rich man lives to excess, and Lazarus is deliberately ignored. Their worlds meet, but they would never mingle. This appears to go on for some time. Lazarus makes repeated trips to the gates of the rich man. The rich man makes repeated trips to his trash can with his unwanted food. Life goes on like this for both of them. Then life ends, and it's here that the eternal value of their lives quickly becomes apparent. Jesus tells us that Lazarus dies. Given the lifestyle, it's most likely well before the rich man. The rich man may have even for a season been able to feel free from the constant guilt trip out the front of his house. But eventually, he dies as well. Lazarus, according to Jesus, is picked up by angels. It's amazing to see that in this life, no one took care of him. Yet all through that time, he was being looked over by God. Did the angels drop food in his lap through his life? No. But was he led to a place where he could be fed and looked after? Absolutely, yes. The name Lazarus may have been selected for this story for a reason, because it actually means the one God helps. It appears that the Lord may have been intimately present during the plight and life journey of this man, and had actually set him up to be assisted in his life. So it's only natural to expect that in death, the Lord himself takes equal care of him. The rich man is merely buried. In his life, he had servants and was blessed in that life in order to be a blessing to others. In death, his servants took care of him, and he would only make it as far as the grave. And unfortunately, in death, he would also be held to account for his many blessings. On the other side of eternity, we find Lazarus at the side of Abraham. For Israel, this was their image of life beyond the grave for the Jews. They believed there would be a feast in the kingdom of God, and we looked at that idea a few episodes back. They would be in the presence of God and celebrating with the Hebrew heroes of the faith. Abraham, as their Alpha ancestor, was highly revered, and the Jews called him their father. To be in his presence, reclined at his side, eating in the kingdom of God, was the outcome they all anticipated. All their religious duty and observance was to ensure they'd be holy enough to get there. To the surprise of those listening, Jesus tells us Lazarus takes his place there. If he was leprous in this life, he was deemed by religion to be cursed by God. If he was a beggar because he'd been unrighteous, in Jewish eyes, he would reap what he sowed forever. Yet in amongst all that, God had been working for this man's good. He had led him to food in life and was now leading him to the food table in the kingdom. Perhaps through all that ordeal in life, all he had to cling to was God's presence, and it appears to have gotten him over the line. Also, to their surprise, Jesus tells us the rich man, blessed beyond measure in life and looked up to by society, and even likely a religious man, given the theological ideas that Jesus is using here, he did not make it there. In this life, he had a religious veneer, enough for him to understand the conversation he is having with Abraham. But he is also a lover of money, the very thing Jesus has just warned his audience not to be. His love for wealth had gotten him to a point where he wouldn't even do the slightest thing for God with it, not even passing on his scraps. This was loving money and hating God in action right there. 
This sort of living led him to death and torment. This man's love for money led him to eternal separation from the presence of God. The use of our wealth is an issue of morality and an issue of life and death, which must not be taken lightly by any means. Jesus then goes on to outline the responsibility that we have in this life to get eternity sorted. The rich man asks if Lazarus could go and warn his brothers about life beyond the grave. Think about that for a moment, when it was in his power to keep his faith in order and behave in a righteous way that demonstrated his love for God, he refused to. When that demonstration involved being a blessing to a beggar named Lazarus, he would not go there. But now he wants that beggar that he tormented in life to go and act on his behalf. His idea is that if a man came back from the dead to tell them, his five brothers would believe and change their ways. But their spiritual father Abraham explains that none of that is going to happen. Instead, what they have in their possession now, Moses and the prophets, would teach them all they needed to know and that there would be enough already contained there to lead them in the right direction and they'd be held to account on its basis alone. In other words, the scriptures would be enough to teach the people. Moses was the first five books of the Bible and the prophets was the rest of the Old Testament. Jesus tells us here that even among the Jewish community, a person returning from the dead would not be enough to convince them. And he would know this because that's precisely what he was soon to be doing in order for some of them to believe. Jesus knew the odds when he went to the cross, and he went there anyway, knowing this was the only way for mankind to be saved. The Old Testament has plenty to say about the issue of personal wealth. Let me offer these passages just to get us started. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 17 to 18 says this, You may say to yourself, My power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth, and so confirms His covenant which He swore to your ancestors as it is today. Leviticus 25, verses 35 to 41 says this, If any of your own people become poor and are unable to support themselves among you, Help them as you would a foreigner and a stranger, so they can continue to live among you. Do not take interest or any profit from them, but fear your God so that your poor neighbors may continue to live among you. You must not lend them money at interest or sell them food at a profit. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. If any of your own people become poor and sell themselves to you, do not make them work as slaves. They are to be treated as hired workers or temporary residents among you. They are to work for you until the year of Jubilee. Then they and their children are to be released, and they will go back to their own clans and to the property of their ancestors. Deuteronomy 15 verses 7 to 8 says this, If anyone is poor among your people in any of the towns of the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for cancelling debts, is near, so that you do not show ill will toward the needy among your people and give them nothing. They may then appeal to the Lord against you, and you will be found guilty of sin. Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then, because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed towards those of your people who are poor and needy in your land. Job 
makes this statement about his faith and how it intermingles with his wealth in chapter 31, verses 16 to 28. If I have denied the desires of the poor or let the eyes of the widow grow weary, if I have kept my bread to myself, not sharing it with the fatherless, but from my youth I reared them as a father would, and from my birth I guided the widow, if I have seen anyone perishing for lack of clothing or the needy without garments, and their hearts did not bless me for warming them with a fleece from my sheep, If I have raised my hand against the fatherless, knowing that I had an influence in court, then let my arm fall from the shoulder, let it be broken off at the joint. For I dreaded destruction from God, and for fear of His splendor, I could not do such things. If I have put my trust in gold, or said to pure gold, You are my security. If I have rejoiced over my great wealth, the fortune my hands had gained. If I have regarded the sun in its radiance, or the moon moving in splendor, so that my heart was secretly enticed and my hand offered them a kiss of homage, then these also would be sins to be judged, for I would have been unfaithful to God on high. When we look through the Old Testament, we find ourselves spoilt for choice when it comes to knowing the heart of God in regards to our wealth. Jesus was right in this story. The Jews had Moses and the prophets, and there was more than enough written in there to warn the people about the perils of loving money. From tithing to family matters to civil issues to works of charity, there was a wealth of passages and commands stating their responsibilities with the wealth they were being blessed with. The Jewish people, like the rich guy in this story, were legitimately left without excuse. There really shouldn't have been too many surprises here. Yet the Jews that Jesus came face to face with, as religious as they had appeared to have been, had gotten so far off track in their outlook on finance that they were now in a very real position of missing eternity in the kingdom altogether. That said, there was a reason the disciples were present and being spoken to here as well. Even this side of the cross, believers were being warned to keep their head on with their financial outlook. The moment we love our money, The moment we forget to extend the blessing we have to others. The moment we let our finances dictate our life without any regard to our faith is the moment we step into territory we have no business being. So let's stop and reflect here. Jesus still has a few more things to say about wealth down the line, but we have a bit of a reprieve for now. However, it is definitely appropriate to challenge our personal thinking at this point. Friend, has God been speaking to you about your attitude towards finance? We have had some very strong messages on this topic thus far, and I appreciate the sometimes confronting nature of these. But we cannot escape the fact that there are sinful attitudes and actions that can separate us from the eternity we are called to have. If we continue in sexual sin and refuse to make changes, eternity hangs in the balance for us. If we continue in any form of idolatry and worship something other than God, eternity hangs in the balance. And if we refuse to let our thinking about our finances be transformed by God, if we refuse to be generous with the blessings we're given, if we love money and let it dictate the terms of our life and even our faith, this becomes a huge moral issue in our lives. And again, eternity hangs in the balance. Please hear my heart, and if you can through this medium, read my lips. There is nothing sinful about having money. There is nothing sinful in being wealthy, and there is nothing sinful about having good or expensive things. What is sinful is when the blessings we receive stay in our pockets, and either investing in the kingdom of God is ignored, or the Lazarus who sits at our gate gets ignored. 
I believe that we all have Lazaruses at our gates somewhere in our lives. You will be aware of these people more likely than not because Jesus is calling you to use your blessing to help them. If you know of such a person, that is your Lazarus. Respond to them like eternity depends on it. The two things which Jesus speaks of investing in outside of ourselves are the kingdom of God and the Lazaruses of our life. The two things God in the Old Testament told Israel to invest in outside of themselves was the greater expression of God, the tabernacle, the temple, the priesthood who would minister back to them and lead them in being a light to the nations, and the poor, the foreigner, and the widow. There is a pretty consistent picture of the heart of God right through the scriptures. So put God first and love him with everything you have. This will ensure that we aren't loving money and we're investing in the eternal things that matter deeply to him. Thanks for tuning in. To learn more about this podcast and other ministries I'm involved in, go to my new website, www.ministryinthedeepend.com.au. You can also find me on Facebook, Instagram, and even YouTube. So please like, follow, subscribe, connect, and comment wherever you can. I look forward to catching up next time. See you then.